Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, if you would open your Bibles to Job chapter 4. And I'm going to give a little recap uh, to the story so far, so that anyone who's kind of missed it uh, has, is caught up. So in chapter 1, we learned about this man, Job. This man who was righteous, this man who feared God, this man who had many possessions, who had a large family, by any measure, he was a man who was blessed. And then we were told that Satan and God had this conversation, and Satan actually approached God regarding Job and asked if he could afflict Job saying that if he could afflict Job, then Job would turn from God, that his faithfulness to God was only because of his blessings. And Job um, would, as, as quickly as the calamity came upon him, he would turn from God. And so God allowed Satan to afflict Job, and that's a question that we may still have as we go through this book. But he gave him permission, gave him permission to afflict his family, afflict him in his possessions, and in a limited way afflict him physically. We saw Job lose just about everything that had any meaning or significance to his life, as well as the physical afflictions, and we went over the last time all of the different things that he suffered physically through this, and yet in all of those things, he did not blame God. That's where we left it off. We left it off with that, that point. And then we, then we saw that he was visited by a couple of friends, and I think that it's nice to see that that he had people in his life that heard of his sufferings and came alongside of him. And I, we made the application to us today to have somebody called us up in the middle of the night and told us that they were struggling and suffering with this great tragedy, we would be at their side. And that's what we are supposed to do. So in chapter 2, we were told of how Job's friends came to his side when they heard of his suffering. I'm going to just recap in a few verses at the end of, uh, in the middle of chapter 2. And that's uh, verses 11, and thir- 11 to 13. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him, and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. 
So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. I had an opportunity to do a memorial service last week, and I used this portion of Scripture because I saw all the people that were gathered around to join in to comfort the person who was grieving this loss. And that's what we do. That's what we do. That's what good friends do. Job had some very good friends, those who heard of his suffering and wanted to bring consolation to him. And as we go into the dialogue, which is really the bulk of this book, between Job and his friends in the next several chapters, I want to remind us not to forget that initial heart of compassion that they had for Job. They came to him. Another thing about Job's friends that we spoke about is that for seven days they didn't say a word. And as we get further into the book, we'll see that that might have been the wisest counsel that he got from his friends, is that they never said anything. A lot of times we don't know what to say, right? When someone's going through difficulty or tragedy. And our presence is really all that they're looking for. So in the following chapters, as we go through this book, we're going to get to know Job's friends very, very well. One at a time, we're given an account of their conversations with Job. Their counsel, we're kind of given a bird's eye view of their counseling sessions. We're let into that room as they seek to give advice and counsel to Job. The Bible records their attempts to bring clarity to a very puzzling situation. We see them offer constructive counsel, but we also see them offer critical and sometimes even hurtful advice. The next several chapters in the book will guide us through those interactions that he has with his friends. As we're introduced to them, and we see how they interact with Job to attempt to give some meaning and understanding to what he went through. So the first friend that we meet is Eliphaz the Temanite. And as we go through in several of the chapters, we get a little insight into Eliphaz himself, what this man was like. But the thing I want to mention at the outset is where he came from. And this is the land of Timon, because I think it helps us with the perspective that he's giving the counsel to Job from. That land was considered a great center of wisdom in the ancient world. It was part of the nation of Edom. But listen to what the Lord says through the prophets regarding this land. I have three quotes from three different portions of Scripture. In Isaiah 34, verse 5, the Lord says, For my sword will be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. This is the land that Eliphaz was from. In Jeremiah 49.20, it says, Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Timon, 
Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places desolate with them. It doesn't sound like God has a really good plan for the future of this region. And then in Obadiah, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. In other words, what God was saying to the inhabitants of this land through the prophets is their intellect, their worldly human wisdom will not be able to save them from God's wrath. I think that's important as we see what this man, Job's friend, Eliphaz, has to say to Job as he comes to comfort him. Throughout history, we know that man has continually put his trust in human wisdom and human intellect. I think it's interesting that the first of Job's counselors is touted as a man of wisdom from a region known for its worldly wisdom. But God's word tells us that human wisdom is limited, that human wisdom is flawed, and eventually God will obliterate it by his wisdom, which is perfect. It says in 1 Corinthians 119, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. See, this is the comparison here between godly wisdom and man's wisdom. And God has done that throughout the ages, bringing down those who were wise in their own eyes, those who are proud because of their intellect, but they don't give God the honor that he deserves. And We know the wisdom of man can't be compared to the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is revealed through the word of God. So as we study, as we read, we are seeing God's wisdom come off the pages of the Bible. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 2 about this sort of this comparison here. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. See, Paul was saying, Paul was a very educated man. And he was in a region where, again, wisdom was highly exalted, and yet he says, we're not going to speak the wisdom of this age. We're not going to speak man's wisdom. We're going to give you the wisdom of God. When we share the gospel, when we tell you about Jesus Christ, it's not going to be from the perspective of the wisdom of man. So remember all of that as we see this friend of Job's, Eliphaz, attempt to give him counsel so we can remember the perspective that he's coming from. So we're going to jump in in verses 1 through 4 of Job chapter 4. And it says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? 
But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. So this sounds like he's complimenting Job, but we're going to see that it's kind of an offhanded compliment. At the beginning here, it says Aliphaz answered Job. What did he answer? What question did Job ask that Eliphaz was answering? Well, we got to look back maybe in chapter 3 when we saw Job's, you know, after everything had happened to him, he finally lets loose. And he finally, after seven days of silence, Job, all of his emotions come out in his words. So Eliphaz was probably answering some of the words that Job spoke when he was in his deepest pain. And I, and I believe when he was also in his deepest confusion about what exactly happened to him. Remember when I gave the account, when we, when we looked at chapter 3 last time, I mentioned that the grief that Job was going through had affected his ability to think straight. Remember he cursed the day he was born? Remember he cursed the day he was conceived? Remember he thought death would, obviously it would remove the pain he was going through, but he didn't realize that God had a plan for his life. So we see Job here in this, in this state of confusion and expressing things in his words that a lot of times didn't quite make sense. And so when Eliphaz answered Job, I'm thinking that's probably what he answered. You know, Christians are supposed to bring comfort and consolation to those who are hurting. And sometimes we answer their words. But I think it would be better sometimes if we just listen and answer the, their heart. Because the deepest emotions that people have may not be expressed in words. We have to be willing as a friend, as a counselor, to look deeper than the words that are coming out of someone's mouth. You know, you know you've all ministered to people in, in times of pain, in times of grief and mourning. And you know sometimes they, they say things that you, know, you, you don't even know how to respond to. But you know that they're hurting inside. And that's where you want to that's where you want to focus how you minister, how you counsel. It didn't seem like Eliphaz did that. <clears throat> it seemed it didn't seem like he was using good counseling technique. He wasn't reading the unspoken needs of Job. And he begins this conversation with Job almost with gentleness and kindness and kind of, like I said, a, 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 a backhanded compliment. But it doesn't take long for the tenor of this to change, and we'll see that as we work through chapter 4. It's interesting how Eliphaz here is sort of setting the foundation, setting the stage for making the case for his counsel to Job. He's sort of building the foundation to, to um, say, to justify what he's going to tell Job. And we, we see that as he, as he breaks his silence here 
and tries to justify um, what he's going to tell Job. He says, basically, Job, you've helped a lot of people with your words. You've gotten a lot of people through difficult times. So why would you look at my words as something that you wouldn't want to hear? If I, I, think, I think, and we know that Job was probably one of the first, earliest books written in the Bible. I think that if the book of Proverbs was written before this, then Eliphaz, Eliphaz might have quoted chapter 25, verse 11 of the book of Proverbs to justify his counsel. That verse says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That's beautiful, and it's true. But notice there's a stipulation, a word fitly spoken. This is the right words at the right time, in the right way, with the right motives, and the right attitude. These are words fitly spoken. Otherwise, and you, I know it's happened to me, otherwise our words can actually do more harm than, than good. I think Eliphaz chose to ignore that obvious thing. He figured, I'm a wise man. Remember, he was from this center of wisdom. He figured, I'm a wise man, and I can certainly help my friend Job in his time of suffering. Just like Job, just Job, just like you've done many times in the past. But notice now, kind of the mood of this counseling session starts to shift. In verses 5 and 6, he says, But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. In other words, the words that Eliphaz is speaking here. Now it comes upon you, Job, and you are weary. It touches you, and you're troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? So Eliphaz must have been getting a little pushback from Job. It's not recorded here, but it looks as though he's starting to give some counsel, and Job is kind of pushing back against it a little bit. But now he's ready to jump in. He's ready to jump in and offer Job some of his incredible wisdom. The time for softness has ended. The time for kind words has ended. And he was going to give him the harsh reality as he sees it. He told Job that as Job counseled others, he should be able to take it. He was rebuking Job for being troubled at his brutally honest words. And, you know, think about all that Job went through. I mean, I would say that this is probably inappropriate at this time. You know, a week has gone by, and yet he's now he's pounding him a little bit. Think about a time when you had to minister to somebody, when you had to comfort somebody. You would want to be softer with your comments, with your counsel, with your attitude, that it wouldn't be helpful. But Eliphaz was on a roll, and so he keeps going. He's going to tell Job here now what the, what the problem is and why he suffered the way he did. So he goes on in verses 7 through 11, and he says, Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lionesses are scattered. Job, if you were truly a righteous man, then you should not have anything to fear from God. If you were truly a righteous man, you wouldn't perish because you would be innocent. You wouldn't be cut off because you would have been upright. Remember at the beginning of this book when we heard God's opinion of Job? And God's opinion of Job was that he was an upright man. Isn't it more important what God's opinion is than, than man's opinion? You see, the problem with this counsel that Eliphaz was giving is that it's really bad theology when you come right down to it because we know that God doesn't always protect the righteous from suffering. External circumstances do not reveal someone's relationship with God. If that were true, all of the godly people in the Bible would never have suffered, but we know that that's not so. Look at this account in 2 Corinthians of the Apostle Paul, who we would all consider a righteous man, a man who definitely knew God, a man who wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And look at this account in 2 Corinthians 11 for what the Apostle Paul experienced. It says in verse 24, From the Jews five times I received forty stripes Minus one. Now think about it. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. And yet, from the Jews I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles. So, Jew or Gentile, didn't matter where he went, he got persecuted. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toll, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. So does it sound like Eliphaz's theology is correct here? That if you were righteous, you wouldn't suffer, Job? No. The Apostle Paul experienced severe persecution, as did most of the disciples. And most of them were martyred for their faith in Christ. Now, folks, we don't always understand how God works, right? It would seem fair to us that only the wicked would suffer and that the righteous would, would be removed from that in their lives. But we all know that we live in a fallen world. And this fallen world is many times not fair. I think of King David who struggled with this as we read through the Psalms we see his heart come out as he struggled with this concept also. 
And I want to read a portion. I'm trying to set the stage here for all of the counsel that Job is going to get in the next 30-some-odd chapters. David says in Psalm 73, for, in verse 3, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. This is, he's talking about the wicked prospering. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say... How does God know? So they're doing these wicked deeds and they think, God doesn't know. How does God know? Is there really knowledge in the Most High? You see, because they're prospering, thinking again as man would think, if God knew, I would be cut, cut off because I know I'm wicked, but God must not know. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease, David says. They increase in riches, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So David says, no, that's not, that's not true. The, the wicked are not really prospering. It just looks that way. And then he goes on and he says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Think about that. Try to understand what Job went through. Try to understand what, what your suffering is like. Try to understand why. Isn't it sometimes painful when we think about those things, when we try to comprehend the suffering in this world? And, yet, and then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. I love I loved the Psalms of David. I love them because we see all of his emotions laid bare for us to see. And we can really, really relate to them. And a lot of times he takes us, just in a group of maybe 10 verses, he takes us from a place and brings us somewhere else until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then I understood. Then I understood. What I'm telling you is, when you don't understand what God's doing in your life, don't question Him. And sometimes don't even seek counsel. Go to the Lord. Get alone with God. Let Him comfort your heart. Let Him speak to you in those times. We may not understand all of his ways, but he'll ease our minds. He'll reveal his character to us. And then we can and then we can apply one of my favorite portions of scripture to our lives in Philippians 4 6 and 7 it says be anxious for nothing but in everything 
by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You get alone with God in prayer. Let, let him know your requests. Let him know the pain that's in your heart. Let him know that you don't understand what's going on. And then let him cover you with his peace. And then just trust in him. So back in verse 7 here of chapter 4, Eliphaz says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Well, I can think of one innocent man who perished. The only innocent man, Jesus Christ. I can think of, think of one righteous person who was cut off. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he was cut off for each and every one of us, and yet he was completely innocent. See, Eliphaz here is telling Job that God is completely fair. No righteous person will ever slip through the cracks and wind up suffering. But, well, ultimately, eternally, yes, that's true. But here and now, in the immediate, in the day-to-day, in the sinful world that we live in, that's, that's not how it works. We don't see it happen that way. He was mischaracterizing the nature of God in his dealings with people. And again, he's telling Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned to deserve the misfortune that came upon you, Job. Or else this would not have happened. When Jesus, before he was crucified, he tried to comfort his disciples, right? He had some conversations with them, and they had questions for him. And, but he also gave a warning, kind of a warning to them. In John chapter 16. And it's a warning to us. It's kind of... It, it, it's a sobering thing to us. Brings proper balance to our thoughts, what Jesus said. He says in 1633, These things I've spoken, spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the, in the world you will have tribulation. See, we have peace through Christ, knowing that we will be with him for all eternity. But in this world, in this life, during the time that we walk this earth, we will have tribulation. But what does he say? Be of good cheer, right? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Believer, your situation doesn't reflect your relationship with God. Your circumstances don't tell the whole story of your relationship with God. It tells the story more of a fallen world that we live in. I want to just show a quick video to kind of bring this home, and then I'll, I'll move through the rest of this chapter, which, which um, is kind of one thought as we go through the end of it. But let's just watch this video. 
Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We're going to answer that question. This is a condensed answer. To dive more deeply, we invite you to view the article on our website, gotquestions.org. We live in a world of pain and suffering. There is no one who is not affected by the harsh realities of life. And the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is one of the most difficult questions in all of theology. God is sovereign, so all that happens must have at least been allowed by Him, if not directly caused by Him. At the outset, we must acknowledge that human beings who are not eternal, infinite, or omniscient cannot expect to fully understand God's purposes and ways. The book of Job deals with the issue of why God allows bad things to happen to good people. Job was a righteous man, yet he suffered in ways that are almost beyond belief. God allowed Satan to do everything he wanted to Job, except kill him, and Satan did his worst. What was Job's reaction? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job did not understand why God had allowed the things he did, but he knew God was good and therefore continued to trust in him. Ultimately, that should be our reaction as well. As hard as it is to acknowledge, we must remember that there are no good people. All of us are tainted and infected with sin. As Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. We live in a fallen world and we experience the effects of the fall. One of those effects is injustice and seemingly senseless suffering. When wondering why God would allow bad things to happen to good people, it's also good to consider these four things about the bad things that happen. Number one, bad things happen to good people in this world, but this world is not the end. Christians have an eternal perspective. We will have a reward someday, and it will be glorious. Number two, bad things happen to good people, but God uses those bad things for an ultimate, lasting good. When Joseph, innocent of wrongdoing, finally came through his horrific sufferings, he was able to see God's good plan in it all. Number three, bad things happen to good people, but those bad things equip believers for deeper ministry. Those with battle scars can better help those going through the battles. And number four, bad things happen to good people and the worst things happened to the best person. Jesus was the only truly righteous one, yet he suffered more than we can imagine. Jesus is no stranger to our pain. God allows things to happen for a reason. Whether or not we understand his reasons, we must remember that God is good, just, loving, and merciful. Often, bad things happen to us that we simply cannot understand. Instead of doubting God's goodness, we should trust Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. We walk by faith, not by sight. That answers the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? So, we... A lot of a lot of us go to that website. It it seems to be pretty solid, uh, theologically speaking, and um, balanced in its answers, biblical. So, um, I found that video and I thought it was pretty uh, appropriate to show during this this teaching tonight. So, you know, these are questions that we have, and these are questions that are not necessarily answered in the Book of Job. But these are things that we want to at least be able to put in a place in our lives, right? That we can continue on and do those things that God's called us to do. So 
Um, we're going to now see. We're going to now see how Eliphaz, in these last verses, in verses twelve through twenty-one, will present his arguments to Job in order to prove the validity of his counsel. See, he's trying to prove himself to Job that what he's telling him is valid. And the first thing that we see is this experience that Eliphaz had. And I know many times we we might do the same thing, that we want to empathize with someone in their circumstances. So we might tell them of an experience that we had that may not be the same as what they're going through, but that can sort of shed light on this situation, that, that they can see that we're trying to understand what they're going through so that our counsel to them will then will, will tend to have more meaning and significance. So Eliphaz is doing this, and, and he tells about this, this experience. And he says in verse 12 and through 21, Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it, in disquieting thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, Fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts his trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are all broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. Who's they? They is man, mortal man, Eliphaz is talking about, um, whose foundation is the dust. Remember, we were made from the dust of the earth. Adam was created. But this is a strange passage. It seems as though Eliphaz is kind of relating this experience to Job, saying he had this really weird nightmare and that God spoke to him in the midst of this nightmare. And, you know, the Bible records God coming to people in the midst of dreams or visions to reveal himself. I mean, Abraham was given the covenant of God in a dream. Jacob was given the assurance by God that his lineage would carry on the continuation of that promise. Jacob's son, Joseph, was given a revelation, a vision, a dream by God. That uh, about his future and the future of his family through dream, dreams. Mary's husband, Joseph, you know, Jesus' stepfather, was given reassurance by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit was responsible for Mary's pregnancy. And he also received in a dream the, um, the instructions to take his family to Egypt. So we see how God used dreams throughout. There are more examples through the scriptures. And God may even speak to us through dreams or visions. And even now we hear reports, especially of places in remote parts of the world, 
where God is revealing himself to people through dreams and visions. And Eliphaz here says that God gave him some deep wisdom regarding the nature of life and the ultimate end of man. And that God revealed to him the reasons for Job's suffering. And here, Job, I'm going to share all of this that I've learned from this unusual experience. But this account here sounds a little bit off. I wouldn't take it at face value. First of all, he didn't say his dream was from the Lord. He said he had a nightmare. He said he had a a dream. He woke up. I, I don't know about God coming to us and scaring us awake, making the hairs on our arms stand up. But he also said a spirit, a spirit passed before him. He didn't say that it was the spirit of God. So I think about 1 John where John warns us in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because you have this experience that you think is of God, you still need to test those things against the Bible. That's what's going to tell you whether it's truly of God or not. And then it sounds as though Eliphaz has this sort of this incomplete picture as to the nature of man and his relationship with God. Because, it, it, yes, it's true, man was made a little lower than the angels, as Eliphaz says here. And if God had to judge the angels, then why not more, that much more man? We're, we're common, we're fragile as clay, so to speak. But we're also made in the image of God, aren't we? We're set in a place to do God's will. We have significance and purpose in this world. We're not just fragile beings that are just waiting to be destroyed by God. We have significance. And when we live according to God's plan, we can accomplish awesome things for his glory and for the benefit of our fellow man. I think about, again, David writes in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and and you have crowned him with glory and honor. See, we are God's masterpiece. Eliphaz is giving an incomplete picture as to our relationship with God. We are created for a purpose. We are the pinnacle of God's creation to have relationship with him. Let's never, ever forget that. And when we go through trials and when we go through difficulties and when calamity comes into our life, let's never, ever think that God is just discarding us because of those things. He loves us. He has a plan and a purpose for us. Now, of course, we have the entire revelation of God through the Scriptures. So we really get to see the full picture of how much God loves us, each and every one of us. So I don't want to be too hard on Eliphaz. He didn't have that complete picture 
But as we go out and we have opportunities to minister to people, let's remember these things. That we never want to bring something that's an incomplete characterization of God to someone. Because that, that kind of thing can do more harm than good, than good. It's better to just sit and not say a word. And even if you sit for seven days and don't say anything, you might have just given the best, absolutely best counsel that you ever could give. Well, next time when we get together, we're going to hear from Eliphaz. He's going to continue this testimony against Job, that Job is being chastened by God and that he brought this calamity upon himself due to the sin in his life. That should be an um, interesting time that we get together again. But remember, God loves each and every one of you. And if you're going through struggles right now, never, ever forget that. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.